Focus on Headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Yoon Jung and uh, Kim Min-ji. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. All right, so the big story, although a uh, bit disappointing, I would have to say, uh, is South Korea's southeastern port city of Busan uh, falling short in its bid to host the 2030 World Expo. Saudi Arabia's Riyadh uh, won with a resounding victory uh, over both uh, Busan and Italy's Rome without a runoff vote. Hejung, uh, let's get the, uh, the updates on the voting results. Right. For many Koreans uh, <coughs> and Busan citizens, this may be some disappointing news as Saudi Arabia's capital city, Riyadh, is set to host the 2030 World Expo. Now, the final voting results were revealed today around 1.30 a.m. Korea time, and Riyadh won uh, 119 votes in the first round against Busan's 29 votes and 17 votes for Rome, with the Saudi capital claiming more than two-thirds of the votes from the 165 participating countries. No country abstained from the vote, and the host was decided without the need for a runoff vote. The South Korean government solemnly accepted the result of the crushing defeat as Prime Minister Han Dok-su said that he sincerely apologizes for not being able to return the support people have given and that he feels a heavy sense of responsibility. And Prime Minister Han added that he will further <coughs> develop the diplomatic assets gained from visiting more than 180 countries as part of the campaign to host the expo. Other Korean representatives also expressed disappointment at the result, but said that the city of Busan would actively consider making a bid for the World Expo event in 2035. Meanwhile, pundits had said that Busan's bid was already a long shot considering Riyadh had begun a substantial marketing campaign a year ahead of South Korea, with Busan only joining the, the campaign in the summer of last year. And experts from Busan's campaign said the astronomical amount of capital available to Saudi Arabia enabled its delegation to offer direct and immediate aid solutions to voter countries, which might have helped their winning. And although it was a pretty big defeat for South Korea, experts added that the 17-month-long international bidding process would give know-how and create opportunities for future market development. Now, the World Expo can take place for up to six months and has a legacy of creating economic benefits and jobs with tens of millions of visitors from all around the world attending, which is why countries are so eager to host this mega event. And the most recent World Expo took place in Dubai between October 2021 and March 2022. And the next World Expo will take place in Osaka, Japan in 2025. Yeah, we've got a lot of messages uh, coming in from our listeners who were quite disappointed with the results. I think the results were very shocking, um, at least according to what a lot of the media outlets were saying. They thought it was going to be a very close race uh, down to the wire. Uh, although yesterday when we had a chance to talk to attorney Anjun Sung, one of the things that he mentioned was that, sure, a lot of countries could promise votes, but because mm -hmm. it's a secret vote, uh, they can not choose Busan, and no one will know who was mm -hmm. the ones that did not choose, right? Just a secret vote is what it is. It's just that 
I don't think anyone really expected this gap, huge right. gap. Uh, really, certainly shows that how much Saudi Arabia's big oil money has assisted them in getting the hosting rights there. And even if they, you know, added Rome's votes, it, it wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. in the first place. So, uh, quite disappointing. Obviously, we would have loved to see the Busan World Expo in 2030, but as they said, they're now trying to push for a 2035 World Expo there. But uh, nevertheless, with this, President Yoon Sagyar also publicly apologizing for the disappointment surrounding the bid for the 2030 World Expo. Now he shared his reflections on the challenges faced in securing the international support and outlined the government's strategies to rebound from this recent setback. Uh, Minji, let's get more on this. So, in an unannounced message to the people delivered at the presidential office in Yongsan, President Yoon Seok-yeol took full responsibility for the outcome and expressed regret for not meeting the expectations of the people of South Korea, not least Busan. So, President Yoon stated, as president overseeing and responsible for the bid for the 2030 World Expo in Busan, I'm truly sorry for disappointing the citizens of Busan. And he went on to express that he will take all the blame and acknowledged the shortcomings in his predictions regarding the international support. So as Hejong said, having engaged with leaders from 96 countries over 150 times, President Yoon admitted that his predictions about the positions of these countries during the private public context were significantly (coughs) off. He emphasized that all of this is his shortcoming and took full responsibility for the perceived failure in securing international support for the expo bid. So President Yoon reflected on his visit to Busan in July 2021 on the aspirations of Busan citizens and the disappointment in government support. But he did promise that back then that he would exert all his efforts to Uh, help Busan hold the expo in 2030. Uh, He highlighted the government's commitment to balanced development with Seoul and Busan as the two pillars. And he reiterated that the strategy for balanced development would continue despite the setback. President Yoon emphasized Busan's role as a center for maritime, international finance, high-tech industry, and digital sector, envisioning it as a base to drive the development of the southern regions. He also pledged to promote Busan on the global stage and connect the southern regions seamlessly, and this is to ensure economic and industrial activities will be carried out without necessarily having to go through Seoul. So while expressing disappointment over Busan's unsuccessful bid, President Yoon congratulated Saudi Arabia for hosting the Expo in Riyadh in 2030. He also pledged he would provide full support to Saudi Arabia and offer resources, experiences, and assets that Korea has prepared for the Busan Expo bid so that Saudi Arabia can host the Expo in 2030 successfully. You know, one of the things that I saw today was uh, some of the responses from the rival party lawmakers uh, in regards to this. And uh, I thought that it was respect. And, and the last thing I wanted to see is for, let's say, if South Korea fails to get Busan's uh, bid for the World Expo, that the opposition party starts going, oh, it's the shortcomings of the UN administration and so forth. 
we saw a little bit of that, all right? We did see a bit of that uh, because I think there were some of the main opposition Democratic Party lawmakers who were very shocked at the the, the, the gap in the votes that was received by Riyadh and Busan and, and uh, Rome. But overall, though, it, it seemed like a lot of even the main opposition Democratic Party lawmakers were a bit apologetic and they were disappointed. You said they worked hard in trying to get the hosting rights, but it didn't happen. Uh, but uh, limited rift. Uh, amongst the, the the rival parties there in regards to this, but but we are going to see tensions flaring up once again between the ruling and opposition parties uh, over to whether to hold a national assembly plenary session tomorrow, uh, as the main opposition Democratic Party has renewed its impeachment proposal against Korea Communications Commission Chairman Lee Dong Guan. Remember, it was only uh, about 20 days ago that they withdrew from their initial impeachment process and they're gonna go with it the second time around this, including two prosecutors who are included in the impeachment bill. Hejung, uh, let's get more on this. Right, the main opposition Democratic Party is pushing to hold two consecutive plenary sessions on Thursday and Friday to process the impeachment charges against Chairman Lee dong who is facing allegations that the broadcasting watchdog dismissed an executive from local broadcaster NBC. Now, the ruling People Power Party had reaffirmed that it will not agree to a plenary session just for the impeachment unless there is any progress on passing next year's budget, as that was the original primary goal of the session planned ahead. Now, whether or not a plenary session will be held depends on National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo's decision. At the moment, but it still seems unclear if tomorrow's session will be held. But internally, it is understood that unless the Democratic Party explicitly promises not to process the impeachment bill, tomorrow's plenary session will not be convened. And there are ongoing suspicions that the DP is likely to pressure National Assembly Speaker Kim to convene <coughs> tomorrow's plenary session and pass the impeachment bill on their own. However, uh, the ruling uh, Democratic Party members argue that the Thursday and Friday sessions are uh, were already agreed upon by the ruling and opposition parties. Their plan is to submit the impeachment bill on the 30th, which is tomorrow, and then put it into vote 24 hours later on December 1st, Friday, because an impeachment bill must be processed within 72 hours after its submission. And if that's not the case, the impeachment bill uh, will be automatically scrapped. Yeah, so the problem right now with this, the, initially when uh, the DP withdrew its initial impeachment bill uh, 20 days ago, there was a lot of... Uh, controversy in regards to this, and even the ruling PPP had criticized Kim Jin-pil, the Speaker of the National Assembly, for letting that go through, uh, because they were saying that there was not enough discussions in the plenary session, uh, even with the withdrawal process. And this next plenary session is also highly contentious, because the ruling PPP is saying, these two days are set to be used to vote on next year's budget. But instead of using it for next year's budget voting, you're using it for an impeachment process bill that you withdrew in the first place mm -hmm. and you're bringing it back. And so you're wasting our time. It should be done for what it was supposed to be scheduled for. And that's the, uh, the, 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 the budget issue here. So again, it, it's gonna get pretty rowdy over there whether or not this is going to happen. Remember the DP still holds majority in the National Assembly.
In the meantime, let's get some updates on the education sector here. The Ministry of Education recently taken a significant step by introducing a model ordinance aimed at reshaping the rights and responsibility of students, teachers, and guardians. And the move comes, of course, amidst concerns that the existing student rights ordinance has led to an imbalance favoring student rights at the expense of school rights. Minji, tell us all about this. Sure. So today, the Ministry of Education announced the creation of a model ordinance on the rights and responsibilities of school members, and it has distributed to local education offices. The initiative is designed to prompt local governments to review and revise their existing ordinances in a bid to foster a more balanced and respectful school culture. So criticism has been directed towards the current school student human rights ordinances in seven provinces, including Seoul, Gyeonggi, Icheon, Chungnam, Gwangju, Jeonbuk, and Jeju. The ministry responded by focusing on equal specifications of the rights and responsibilities of students, teachers, and guardians addressing the perceived imbalance. The model ordinance include, introduces a basic principle emphasizing mutual respect among school members. It states that school members should respect each other's rights, ensuring their rights are exercised without infringing on others. And in cases of conflicting bylaws, the ordinance takes the precedence. Notably, the ordinance underscores the importance of respecting the rights of all school members in educational activities. Activities. So it highlights teachers' rights to teach and the students' rights to learn without infringement in all school activities. In addressing teachers' concerns, it grants teachers the right to refuse personal cell phone complaints and resist interference outside their duties. The ordinance also includes procedures for handling and mediating uh, complaints or conflicts between school members. So teachers, if they believe that they're legitimate education activities are infringed upon so they can file reports with the school principal or the committee for the protection of teaching rights. Students' rights to non-discrimination, rest, and privacy have actually been omitted in this model ordinance because the ministry stated that constitutional guarantees already secure privacy and freedom of expression, rendering them unnecessary in the ordinance. All right, so then um, what about the responsibilities of the guardians, the superintendents, and the principals then? Well, guardians are tasked with respecting the rights of school staff and students, ensuring good character education at home. So they may file complaints with the school's response team if they believe rights have been violating, safeguarding the legitimate educational activities of the school. And uh, the responsibilities of the superintendent include ensuring teachers um, to teach and protecting the learning rights of all students. Principals are designated to handle school complaints with provisions in place to protect complaint handlers and establish in-school response teams. So while the sample ordinance serves as a guide from the Ministry of Education, it is within the responsibility of the local governments to revise their ordinances. But cities and provinces such as Seoul and Gyeonggi are reportedly considering adopting the model ordinance, potentially adjusting its contents based on local conditions. Also, uh, starting on this uh, Wednesday, the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education will start running its trial operation of the school visit reservation system. So under the system, you have parents, 
who need to make a meeting reservation in advance to visit the schools their child goes to. This, of course, trying to prevent them from making unnecessary phone calls and text messages and bothering teachers left and right 24-7. Hejung, uh, tell us about the changes we're going to see now. Right. The system will be operated for a trial run in 68 souls in Seoul, which include elementary, middle, high, and special schools. So if parents want to make a school visit, they have to. Uh, what they have to do in advance is first search the name of their kid's school in the Kakaotok Messenger app, then submit the purpose of their visit, who they want to visit, and the date and time of their visit, and then get approval from the school. Now, until December 15th, parents can still visit schools without going through this prior reservation process. But starting December 18th, parents and parents of students who go to one of the 68 schools that are part of the trial program have to make a reservation and go through the approval process, and no random unplanned visits would be accepted. Now, this system is introduced to prevent teacher harassment by parents, like you've mentioned. In the wake of the incident in July, where a young teacher took her own life at an elementary school in Seoul after having a hard time dealing with abusive complaints from parents. So in September, the Seoul Education Office announced a comprehensive plan to protect teachers' rights, saying that it would introduce a school meeting reservation system, which is expected to prevent infringement on educational activities that occur when teachers respond to these parent complaints directly. And the superintendent of the Seoul Education Office, Choi Yeon, said that after the 10-month trial operation in the 68 schools, the Office of Education will closely examine if the system is efficient, convenient, and appropriate, and then decide whether to fully introduce it throughout all the schools in South Korea starting next year. Yeah, I never just understood why this isn't implemented in all the schools out there. <laughs> and I don't understand how teachers, I mean, no, sorry, parents can make unannounced visits and just ram into schools and go, I want to talk to mm -hmm. the teachers. Just barging in. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's normal. I, you know, it's something that I'm not very much used to. And it, it's, it's so funny because when I, when I was growing up in the U.S., we have this thing called the parents-teacher meetings. And it happens uh, twice a year, I want to say once a year or twice a year. Uh, and it's one of those things where parents don't want to go. <laughs> Parents do not want to go to parents-teacher meetings. It, like, it's, it's just annoying, right? And so they want to find out how the kids are doing and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And the teacher is like, wow. And it's the teachers that are calling the parents going, your kid is not up to standards. He's not, he's not doing well. He's failing these classes. So you need to come and hear this. And the parents are going, oh, man, I don't want to hear this. Do I really have to go? But here it's the other way around where if the kid is failing... It's the parents who are going, well, you're not teaching the, our kid uh, well. And, and it, it doesn't even stop from just going to the schools. It, it goes into uh, phone numbers. I don't understand why uh, parents should have access to the phone numbers mm -hmm. of these teachers, to be honest with you, and uh, messages left and right. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if this project, now pilot program, is very successful in just the 20, uh, 68 schools in the beginning. And then it's implemented to all the other schools and all grades uh, moving forward here, because again, this is one of those reasons for why we've seen a, a, an increase in teachers who unfortunately take their lives because of the bullying that they go through by the parents there. Uh, in the meantime, let's move on. Uh, some significant development in the aftermath of the Itaewon tragedy. Uh, we just recently had 
just a year, right? It's a year and one month since the very tragic incident over in Taiwan. Uh, the head of the Hamilton Hotel, whose illegal construction was linked to the incident, has been sentenced in the first instance, marking a pivotal moment in the legal proceeding. Minji, uh, let's get more on this. Well, after 396 days since the tragic event of October 29, 2022, the first sentences in connection with the Itaewon tragedy have been handed down. Judge Jung Geum-young of the Seoul Western District Court's Criminal Division 4 presided over the case. Today, on the 29th, Judge Jung sentenced 76-year-old hotel CEO to a fine of 8 million Korean won, which is about 62 hundred U.S. dollars for violating building and road traffic laws. Notably, this is the first instance of any defendant being sentenced in connection to the Itaewon tragedy. Prosecutors had initially sought a one-year prison sentence for this CEO. Additionally, the owner of the lounge bar Prost, located in the Hamilton Hotel's annex, received a fine of 1 million Korean won, about 776 US dollars, and its tenant was fined 5 million Korean won, about <coughs> 3,900 U.S. So the charges against Hamilton Hotel are centered on the alleged obstruction of traffic through the construction of illegal structures such as steel panels near the hotel and lounge bar in Yongsanggu, Seoul, which is a densely trafficked area in 2018. So the court acknowledged that the steel panels were built to prevent external intrusion into the hotel or to protect the internal facilities, constituting a fence that encroaches on the road. But because the degree of this illegal extension is not so significant, it is challenging to ascertain that the Hamilton Hotel CEO had actually deliberately hindered the traffic. So this verdict is a significant step in the legal proceedings surrounding the Itaewon tragedy, shedding light on the responsibilities of those connected to the Hamilton Hotel. It's like the bare minimum that's being done right now. Mm -hmm. And you guys, we, we actually, right before the show, where we were talking about how we, when we were younger, or at least when I was younger, we used to hang out in these areas, <laughs> right? Like behind uh, Hamilton, we talked about mm -hmm. Prost, and we talked about another place above, <laughs> second floor from Prost and stuff like that. We've always seen those, the, 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 the scaffolds, right? Like the illegal right. construction that right. was going on. It was there for years, mm -hmm. even before the Itaewon tragedy last year. It was always there. And you're talking about back when I was in my 20s, hanging out in the Itaewon in my 20s, it was still there. And how no one pointed out how that this was an illegal construction that was going on mm -hmm. and that they weren't fined. But because there was a tragedy that happened, they're going to blame that. That wasn't that wasn't the, the main reason for why there was a, a huge crowd crush. It was because there was no uh, crowd control uh, being done there. I, it's always been there. Why have they not been you know fined before? And so I just feel like it's like a mini scapegoat into mm -hmm. all of this and this really doesn't solve anything it doesn't really give the answers to all the victims families and uh it, it really is unfortunate after all after a year now still no one really truly been held responsible uh for the terrible tragedy that occurred over uh in Itaewon last year so we'll see what happens maybe more answers to come in the meantime we have uh of the 11 frontline guard posts that were destroyed or withdrawn under the uh, the former September 11th, uh, 19th, so check that, uh, inter-Korean military agreement. You have South Korean military authorities now plan to restore their 
postcards, starting with the one in Gosang, Gangwon Province, which was designated for preservation. Hejung, let's get the details of this. Uh, things do look uh, pretty tense between the two sides. Right. According to multiple government sources on Wednesday, the South Korean military plans to restore the guard post in Gosong, which has been preserved in its original form despite the withdrawal of personnel and equipment under the September 19th military agreement signed in 2018. Now, the two Koreas both destroyed 10 of the 11 guard posts that they were operating respectively inside the demilitarized zone under the agreement five years ago. And each Korea's left one post remaining, preserving the original structure but withdrawing troops and equipment. And back then, North and South Korea selected 11 posts on each side within one kilometer of the DMZ for withdrawal. And by the end, of the withdrawal process, the total number of guard posts in the DMZ was reduced from more than 160 to 150 on the North Korean side and from more than 60 to 50 on the South Korean side. The preserved Gosong guard post was the first guard post installed on the south side of the DMZ after the Korean War Armistice Agreement was signed in 1953. In, 19, uh, in 2019, the Gosong post was also registered as a cultural asset by Korea's Cultural Heritage Administration. Now, the South Korean military authorities chose to restore the Gosong Guard Post first because it is located at a strategically important location in the northernmost part of the Eastern Front, which means it's the closest guard post to North Korea. And as it is preserved in its original form, it's easy to restore the function as a guard post just by deploying troops and equipment. Now, meanwhile, the North is also in the process of restoring its guard posts right across the Gosong post. So South Korean mil military authorities are reportedly planning to restore the Gosong guard post first, while the remaining 10 destroyed guard posts will be restored, depending on how North Korean military's work uh, goes on to restore theirs. Yeah, I mean, they're basically going to respond to whatever North Korea is doing. I mean, we talked about yesterday, mm -hmm. I think, that uh, over at the Joint Security Area in the Truth Village of uh, Panmunjom, you have the North Korean soldiers now armed with pistols. Um, the inter-Korean agreement even had them basically unarmed, right, both sides. And now they're saying that uh, if North Korea continues to arm its soldiers, at, even at the JSA, that uh, they're going to consult with the, the UN command, which mm -hmm. who oversees the, the, the JSA, and to have the South Korean soldiers also uh, be armed. Now, granted, for our listeners out there, being armed doesn't mean that they're, they're going to point guns at each other or anything like that, but it's more symbolic uh, than anything. And uh, to ch show that tensions are probably at its peak right now, uh, really climbing up from what it really was the closest that we ever gone to achieving peace on the Korean Peninsula uh, some years ago. But uh, also, we're finding out that North Korea is going to continue to close its diplomatic missions. We have reports confirming the shutdown of its embassies in Bangladesh and the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo as well. And of course, again, this follows a series of closures in various countries over the past few months. Minji, let's get the latest on the, uh, the closures over in those two embassies. 
Sure. So in the latest diplomatic reshuffling, North Korea has closed its embassies in Bangladesh and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So this decision comes in the wake of similar closures in Angola, Hong Kong, Nepal, Spain, and Uganda in recent months. So the North Korean regime has stated that these closures are part of a broader effort to enhance diplomatic efficiency. Just last week, North Korea officially closed its embassy in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and according to reports from the Daily Star, a local daily, the North Korean regime informed the Bangladeshi government that its diplomatic mission in India would be taking over relevant affairs. The closure marks the end of diplomatic ties that were established between the two countries in 1973. Four North Korean diplomats, including the ambassador, had been stationed at the now shuttered embassy in Bangladesh. The closure follows a similar pattern seen in recent shutdowns, indicating a systematic approach to restructuring North Korea's overseas diplomatic presence. The North has provided a rationale for these closures, stating that the moves are aimed at improving diplomatic efficiency. The shutting down of embassies and the transfer of responsibilities to other diplomatic missions appear to be part of a North Korea's broader diplomatic strategy. So this latest development adds to the growing list of diplomatic closures by North Korea. As geopolitical dynamics continue to evolve, the impact of these closures on international diplomatic landscape remains to be seen. Guys, let's go over to the United States. Uh, it's pretty ugly over there as well because the U.S. government continues to operate under this uh, stopgap budget after the Republicans and the Democrats continue to fail to agree on an annual budget for fiscal year 2024. Uh, concerns are now growing that this may lead to security issues on the Korean Peninsula. So, Hejong, uh, give us the latest over there in the U.S. Right. The U.S. fiscal year for 2024 began on October 1st, but the Democratic and Republican parties have been unable to agree on an annual budget bill. So as a result, the parties have passed a series of stopgap budgets that maintained uh, spending levels from the previous fiscal year in order to avoid a federal government shutdown. And President Joe Biden signed the stopgap measure this month to keep the government open until lawmakers can agree on a full year spending bill. Now, the current stopgap funding for defense is set to expire on February 2nd next year, and the White House requested a $105 billion security budget from Congress last month, which should be used for military assistance to Ukraine and Israel, as well as to contain China. But this request has also been stalled amid divisions in the U.S. Congress. So the problem is that con congressional dysfunction has led to the Pentagon having no money to pay for their buildup. And according to Politico, a U.S. politics-focused news outlet, the U.S. military, like the rest of the federal government, is operating under a temporary funding measure that freezes spending at previous year's levels. And because support for the Middle East wasn't planned, the Pentagon has had to pull money from existing operations and maintenance accounts, which means less money for training, exercises, and deployments the military had already planned for that year. Now, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks said last week that the estimated uh, impact of keeping the Pentagon under the stopgap means the department takes a $35 billion cut. 
And Pentagon officials have warned for years about the adverse effects of the stopgap budget on military readiness, as it would not be able to fund new programs or spend more than the previous year's level. Therefore, if the stopgap budget situation persists, uh, there is the possibility of less budget being allocated for U.S. deterrence against North Korea, which naturally leads to concerns that it could spark security issues on the Korean Peninsula if America's frequency and intensity of the deployment of strategic assets decreases. Yeah, and and, and the thing is right now, even without this whole issue, issues on the Korean Peninsula is not the priority for the United States when it comes to security stuff, right? Right now, I think it's shifted over to the Middle East. Uh, there's still the, the war in Ukraine that they have to uh, think about. They, they have to worry about China and the Taiwan issues and so forth. And so, like, you could say that South Korea, North Korea tensions, it's like number four on their list. It's not even their priority at this time. But given the fact that there's less budget, then it's going to make it worse. But some people who look at this glass half full instead of glass empty is saying, well, if there's less uh, strategic assets going into the Korean Peninsula, maybe then North Korea will be happy and maybe they'll be open for talks <laughs> and uh, open for, for dialogue. <laughs> Uh, use this opportunity to basically say, we're ready to talk as well, is what some people are saying. Uh, in a bid to promote the achievements of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, Joe, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, he's set to visit CS Wind, which is the world's largest wind tower manufacturer. Uh, this on Wednesday local time. Uh, this visit is part of his Bidenomics platform, uh, focusing on clean energy manufacturing and job creation. Minji, let's get more on this. So President Biden, who is seeking re-election, will make his second visit to a Korean company's factory in the United States. The visit to CS Wind, uh, Wind's facility aims to highlight the progress made in clean energy investments and job creation under the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA. White House spokesperson Karen Jean-Pierre stated that since Biden took office, Colorado has seen seven billion U.S. dollars in investments with the IRA, contributing to the creation of 3,500 quality jobs in the state's clean energy sector over the past year. So during the visit, President Biden will address opposition from the Make America Great Again Republican Party, and he will emphasize that the Republicans have not only voted against the IRA, but attempts to repeal them, which poses a threat to investments and job creation. So CS Wind is a South Korean company with the largest global market share of wind towers, and it operates the world's largest wind turbine tower manufacturing plant in Pueblo, Colorado. President Biden's visit coincides with the ongoing expansion of the plant, which is expected to be operational next year, uh, and create 850 additional jobs by 2026. The CS Wind Pueblo plant is situated in the district of Congressman Robin Bobert, a Republican known for his hardline stance on the far right. This visit follows Biden's previous tour to SK Sultron's plant in Bay City, Michigan last um, in November. That time, he emphasized the need to increase investment in the U.S. for critical industries such as semiconductor conductors to secure a supply chain. Honestly, I don't, I don't know if the, re the Inflation Reduction Act really did lead to a reduction in inflation, <laughs> but uh, 
maybe in the long run is what I think uh, Biden is hoping for. Uh, rounding things out here, foreign nationals working in the United States on a short-term work visa will not be will not have to travel to the U.S. consulate in their home countries to renew their visas. Hejang, I'll wrap us up with this. Sure. The United States is gearing up to launch a pilot program for the domestic renewal of certain categories of H-1B visas in December. This means that certain H-1B visa holders will just have to mail their visas to the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C., and they will not have to travel outside the United States. And Julie Stuffed, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Consular Affairs, explained that the State Department is starting small with a pilot of 20,000 cases in December, January, and February and is looking forward to opening that to more categories of workers living in the U.S. in the rest of 2024. And in this first group, the vast majority will be Indian nationals living in the U.S., most of them being technology professionals. Meanwhile, the program, which allows people who have traveled to the U.S. in the past to be exempt from visa interviews if they meet certain conditions, will also remain in place next year. And the State Department is also starting the pilot program of introducing digital visas instead of paper visas. And the visa renewal pilot program is one of the multiple measures the State Department is taking with the aim of driving down wait times to travel to the U.S. You know who's who from the South Korea going to the United States to get jobs? Nurses. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Here in South Korea, there's a shortage of nurses, but apparently in the U.S., there's a shortage of nurses as well. And so a lot of these South Korean nurses, they're finding out that you're getting paid so much more, Mm -hmm. so much more in the United States, Uh, albeit like some crazy schedules that you have to work. But when you're getting paid probably like something like three times more than what you get paid uh, in South Korea, a lot of people are taking different tests and try, you know, getting these visas. And by also working in the United States, they also have the opportunity to get a green card as well. And mm-hmm. so a lot of uh, nurses are heading over to the United States these days, which I think also shows maybe nurses uh, need pay raises here in South Korea as well. Guys, thank you very much for coming in with your report. Stay safe and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.